The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call. What they found was that the incidence of colorectal cancer with flexible sigmoidoscopy was reduced about 21% in relative terms. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. In this episode of Annals on Call, we discuss an article titled... 15-Year Benefits of Sigmoidoscopy Screening on Colorectal Cancer Incidence and Mortality, a pooled analysis of randomized trials, published October 2022. Our discussant is Dr. Colin West, who received his MD and PhD in biostatistics from the University of Iowa. He is currently Professor of Medicine, Medical Education, and Biostatistics at Mayo Clinic. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Colin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, I didn't realize what a controversial topic sigmoidoscopy and colonoscopy might be uh, until recently. And so I thought it'd be worthwhile to go over this very interesting article in the Annals of Internal Medicine about the benefits of sigmoidoscopy. And then maybe we can contrast that with too much, in my opinion, news about how colonoscopies don't do everything they say they should do. So let's refer to this Annals article. What is the main question this study is attempting to address? First of all, I completely agree with you about, you know, learning in the last, you know, few weeks with this literature that's come out that there are a lot of strongly held opinions and differing perspectives when looking at the same data, actually. I think that's important in thinking about how we guide our practices For this particular paper, I think the important background is, as identified by the authors in their own introduction, colorectal cancer is an important health problem across the entire globe. And, you know, they identify 2 million new cases, nearly a million deaths every year. There are a whole host of potential screening options with the intention of catching cases early being able to activate early treatment to reduce morbidity and mortality. But what's been missing is long-term outcomes from randomized studies, really putting these interventions to the test. And so what this study is trying to address is really pooling randomized trial data from the largest long-term follow-up studies that are available at this point for flexible sigmoidoscopy to better inform our understanding of what are the benefits of this particular procedure 
and I'm sure we'll talk later about what the context of this particular procedure is relative to other potential screening tests, recognizing that this particular study doesn't directly inform those comparisons. You sort of implied, and I implied, that there's a bit of a controversy here about whether we need to go to all this trouble. Uh, And having personally had several uh, colonoscopies, it is trouble. And getting ready for uh, sigmoidoscopy is trouble. So have people been writing about this? Or did this idea that it's something that we really need to look at more carefully, is that a new concept? I don't think it's a new concept. And I think the illustration here for why the controversy continues, or just the fact that the controversy continues, is it would be really nice to think, well, if we do a full colonoscopy, directly visualize all of the potentially affected tissue for a colorectal cancer diagnosis, and if we can identify if that's clear, then 10 years and you're off the hook, great, why would we think about doing anything else? But the fact that we continue to look at other potential screening modalities, I think suggests that colonoscopy itself, because of what you mentioned, the prep is, you know, best case scenario, unpleasant. Worst case scenario can actually lead to some harms, electrolyte shifts and things like that. And, you know, some people can't tolerate it. Some people don't get a good uh, visualization as a result of the prep. Some people have difficulties with potentially the time taken off from work that's required for these procedures, if sedation's involved, the anesthetic risks, and all of this whole host of things which suggests, as we should for any screening test, we want to optimize the balance between benefits and risks. And that's, I think, where the controversy is here. How do we know which screening test is the most effective? Which is the best tolerated which is the one that people will actually do? Which recommendation will they adhere to at a level that provides individual and population benefit? If it is an acceptable test, how frequently should they have it? Um, that's another thing people talk about. You know, colonoscopy, I already mentioned, best case scenario, maybe you're off the hook for 10 years. Um, some of these other tests, depending on which screening modality you're concerned with, might be remembering every year to get a uh, fecal sample evaluated or, you know, every few years. And there's a lot of unanswered question about those larger questions about cost effectiveness and the, the overall impact. And I think this study adds to that background information to help inform those questions, even if it doesn't give us all of the answers in a comparative effectiveness sort of way. So could you go over the methods, the countries, and I'm very impressed with the total number of patients in this study, which really is a strength, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's what's interesting about this study is, as I mentioned earlier, they looked at pooling the data from four separate randomized controlled trials from four different countries. So these are randomized trials evaluating patients over 15 years at this point each from Norway, United Kingdom, Italy, and the United States. So not a truly global representation, but four different healthcare systems 
different risk factors potentially across those populations for separate independent studies and pooled all of that data together, looking at patients between the ages of 55 and 64, also an important point, because when we think about the ranges of recommended screening, that's only part of that larger screening range that we think about. But having more than 130,000 patients in total, of whom 101,000, I think, actually had a flexible sigmoidoscopy is just a massive uh, amount of data. And, you know, for this procedure, they also had pretty respectable adherence rates across these studies. The lowest uh, was from Italy at 58%, and in the United States, an 84% adherence, which gives us a really nice opportunity to not only get a sense of well, how does flexible sigmoidoscopy perform as a screening test, but also how would it perform as part of a population screening program where adherence becomes a major issue because the best test in the world doesn't get us anywhere if no one will take it. They looked at these people, they have 15-year data. Why don't we go over the results and, and do they differ by age and do they differ by gender? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is they did divide their age groups into two, you know, sort of the early and the late, you know, 55 to 59 and 60 to 64 didn't really see much in the way of consistent differences across the age groups. So kind of dispense with that part of things. We'll come back to gender a little bit. But overall, what they found was that the incidence of colorectal cancer with flexible sigmoidoscopy was reduced about 21% in relative terms. In absolute terms, it was about 0.5 cases per 100 people screened. And I make the distinction between relative and absolute because we're going to come back to that in any conversation of screening tests because the two numbers can be sort of manipulated depending on which aspect of the story you'd like to emphasize. And I think our patients deserve to hear the full story, not sort of our skewed version of which one we think is, is more impressive. Now, identifying cases of colorectal cancer is really only one outcome that we're interested in, because what we usually care about more than identifying cases is can we identify cases that we can intervene upon so that we can reduce morbidity and mortality. And the mortality reduction was also about 20% in, in relative terms. But in absolute terms, we're talking about 0.13 deaths per 100 persons. 1.3 deaths per 1,000 people screened with a flexible sigmoidoscopy. I should mention, I say screened with a flexible sigmoidoscopy, the non-US studies studied one-time screening. So when we think about our own guidelines for screening in the United States, we're not necessarily talking about one-time flexible sigmoidoscopy over a 15-year period. We have a more frequent screening recommendation for FlexSig. Despite that, in the U.S., they really only looked at two-time FlexSig, not you know, every five years, for example, didn't see dramatically different results with the more frequent screening, which opens up another can of questions down the road, as I mentioned in the early controversies, what is the right frequency of screening for these things? Um, and we'll come back to that discussion uh, as well. So that's colorectal cancer specific mortality. When we step back even further and look at overall mortality, 
there was a 2% relative risk reduction that they estimated as about three deaths per thousand people. So you start to see, you know, sort of less impressive to some people's viewpoints, absolute impacts in overall cause of death, recognizing that we may simply be swapping one cause of death for another. And this is something that we, I think, have not dealt with effectively in screening conversations. And I don't have an answer to it at the moment. I'm just going to raise it. How do we weigh different causes of death in terms of their acceptability? So if, for example, a death from colorectal cancer was much, much worse in a patient's assessment than a death from a competing risk, another cause, then we might not see a reduction in overall mortality as the be-all and end-all outcome if we could reduce the rate or risk of dying from colorectal cancer. Conversely, if dying from colorectal cancer was actually better or more tolerable if a death was going to happen regardless than dying from another cause, well, the same dynamic doesn't come into play. And so these relative uh, value statements about the, the source or ultimate cause of someone's death become important. The final piece then is coming back to women versus men. The study found that there was less benefit among women than among men. And it wasn't entirely clear to the authors why that was. They do propose a few potential explanations. These include that the quality of the bowel preparation might have been different. Procedures in women might have been more technically challenging. And an interesting one that I think sort of uh, foreshadows a conversation about the added advantage or lack of advantage for colonoscopy that's become a point of controversy is are women more likely to have proximal colon cancers than men are? And the proximal colon cancers would obviously not be detected by a flexible sigmoidoscopy that doesn't directly visualize those areas of the colon. If you don't see it, you can't prevent it. And I think those are all largely unanswered questions to my knowledge, but they're really interesting that for large randomized trials, more than 100,000 screen patients give us a signal that there might be something different in women than men should prompt us to understand that physiology better. So in trying to decide the implications of this, the first thing that came to mind as you were talking is the number needed to diagnose is a large number. Uh, I just made up that term, but I guess it's, everybody <laughs> should understand what that means. I think I heard you say that you're really going to diagnose one more uh, early cancer per 200 patients. So for it would take about 200 That's right. uh, sigmoidoscopies to diagnose one. And then it would also be a quite large number to decrease mortality. About 750, I believe, yeah. to prevent one colorectal cancer cause right. or specific death. Well, on the other hand, we, we've all taken care of patients with colorectal cancer, and it can be a horrible, horrible disease. Uh, and so many of us, even if we had to pay out of pocket ourselves, would be willing to do that. But probably those, mostly those of us who are physicians and who see those patients and have that picture in our mind. What do you see as the implications of this at this point? And then I'd like to contrast that with the furor over the colonoscopy study. Yeah, I, I think the implication here is this provides long-term evidence that there is 
a moderately impressive relative risk reduction, a debatably impressive absolute risk reduction in colorectal incidence and specific mortality. And I think this is where it becomes really challenging. And this is where some of the heat has been, I think, in some of the conversations around this testing about what our value statements are for individual risk and population risk. So, you know, if we think about in this study in particular, for example, more than 100,000 patients received Flex 6, they diagnosed 330 colorectal cancer cases out of more than 100,000 flexible sigmoidoscopies. Now, some people are going to look at that and they're going to say, wow, you know, it, it, 330 cases out of more than 100,000, maybe we should be looking elsewhere in terms of things to promote well-being and, and quality of life for patients. But as you identified, other people are going to look at these data and say, look, this is a really bad disease and we can't predict who's going to have a horrific outcome from who's going to have this be a bump in their life's journey. And so 330, that's 330 too many. And there's some judgment there and the tests are not free. There are some exposures and risks to patients and some inconvenience to patients and, you know, it's hard to get good cost data on what a FlexSig costs uh, on average. And of course, much of this is mitigated by insurance. But even if, if your out-of-pocket is covered, somebody's paying at least part of the bill. But I saw a lot of estimates online that a, a FlexSig might be, you know, $750. And pick your own number if you've got a better data point. But if you do that and you've screened... 100,000 patients, what that really says is that you've spent $75 million to detect 330 colon cancers. And we have to have a conversation about whether that is where we want to put our resources because the disease is terrible and we have you know, what many people would argue is a moral obligation to try to reduce these risks, or do we have other aspects of healthcare where these resources would be better applied for greater impact? And having those discussions is obviously highly charged, very emotional. And this is where our public health advocates and experts really need to be front and center in these conversations. You know, take away some of the emotionality of it uh, without ignoring it, but taking it out of the decision-making um, at least immediately, and recognizing, okay, what's the return on investment from this? How does it compare with other screening modalities? Because if we have a less expensive screening modality that is just as effective, well, then that should be the winner here. We'll come back to this, I suspect, in terms of you know how do how do I take all of these data in together? But just to sort of hint at that a little bit, this is why I think groups like the United States Preventive Services Task Force are so critically important, because their entire job is to try and synthesize this really complex evidence and balance these benefits and these risks against other investments that we make as a society to advocate and advance health initiatives. And I don't, you know, $75 million sounds like a lot of money to me for 330 colorectal cancer cases, but I don't have a context for that. I'm a general internist who sees a lot of patients and I don't have a great context for that. 
So how do other people have a great context? If I see a patient with colorectal cancer or risk or, or an average risk person that I'd like to prevent a disease in, I want to bring the best data forward for them. But the emotionality of it suggests, well, everyone's saying you got to do colonoscopy or you got to do a flex sig. I need larger groups that can look at all of the information in a credible way to help inform that decision-making. Given everything we've discussed about this sigmoidoscopy study, which really has quite incredible data, and then we have this recent New England Journal article with some of the same authors, also a Norwegian study where they didn't find a large benefit from offering colonoscopy. And maybe you could just contrast the two studies so that we can put those in our minds when patients ask. Yeah, so I, I think, and the contrasts are really, really important because the comparisons unfortunately become a little bit of apples to oranges. And it makes this extremely confusing. There's been an uproar in the medical community. And so how do patients who are not immersed in this make sense of what sometimes looks like more noise than signal? And so I think some key distinctions for the colonoscopy trial that was recently published are that the adherence in that study was only 42%. So of those who received a male series of invitations to colonoscopy, only 42% actually got the colonoscopy. Now, people who have argued that that trial is not really a fair test of colonoscopy have said, look, if 58% of the, of the people enrolled in the study didn't even get the test in question, how can you say the test isn't as effective as we hoped it would be? On the counter to that argument is, well, if 58% of the people who are offered this test won't follow through with it, then the test isn't acceptable to a large number of people. Now, I'm kind of in the middle personally, because my feeling is I don't think a mailed invitation is enough of a solicitation. And it, in the United States, at least, this may not be sustainable relative to the demands of primary care. But in general, these conversations about colonoscopy or colorectal cancer screening in general happen between a healthcare professional and a patient with a discussion of some kind not simply receiving a postcard in the mail with a description of the procedure and then, you know, sign up if you're interested. It's more involved than that. And I think we saw that in the FLEX-SIG study in this particular uh, pooled analysis, the adherence rate was 84%, as I mentioned previously, reflecting that there's more of a relationship-based dynamic. I had some online conversations with people in Europe who couldn't comprehend that anything other than a mailing for a public health program could even be conceived of. They, they didn't have a good sense in the United States. This is not how we do this. And so I think there are some bridges that, that need, uh, the gaps need to be filled there a little bit. So adherence is one difference. The other piece is there's some concern that in the colonoscopy trial, the quality metrics for a, a good direct visualization of the entire colon were not met to the full standards of current colonoscopy guidelines, which would lead to potentially not seeing as many lesions uh, as might optimally have been detected. And then the final piece that I think is really important in distinguishing these two studies is that the follow-up in that colonoscopy trial was only 10 years. So 
as we follow patients longer, we, we tend to, or at least I think of screening as really the benefits need to be considered over a lifetime of that screening eligible age range. And a single 10-year window is not really how we're thinking about a lifelong screening program. I say lifelong, recognizing that it might be age 45 to 75, or you know, it's not obviously the entire lifespan, but it's not usually a narrow 10-year window. And so the colonoscopy results have to be interpreted in that context. What did they find in that study? Well, colorectal cancer incidence, they saw an 18% uh, relative risk reduction, which is actually slightly less than the colorectal cancer incidence reduction from the FLEX-6 study. Now, at first, that actually makes no sense because how would you detect fewer cancers by looking at more of the colon? But the other differences, I think, help explain it because you're looking for a shorter period of time, you have less adherence, and the colonoscopy or endoscopy quality wasn't as good. That makes it really hard for clinicians or for patients to be able to make an informed decision to really definitively push one way or the other. And so for me, and I wrote about this with the, with the colonoscopy trial, I'm not sure that study actually moved me either in favor of or against colonoscopy relative to other screening tests. It kind of just reaffirmed that the decision-making is complex and we need more data over longer periods of time, with the exception being, if you're somebody from a public health standpoint who has already decided, I'm about to rattle a cage here, I, I, I get that. If you've already decided that these small absolute benefits do not justify a large public health program, then I think these studies actually would support you in saying, huh, maybe we need to rethink our colorectal screening, uh, cancer screening regimens altogether. That's not what I take from this because there's the preponderance of evidence from the USPSTF and other groups. But I think that would at least would at least be a logically consistent way of thinking about it. So uh, I'm going to assume that you have told me what you're doing now, given all these data, and that you're still having a conversation about what the risks and benefits are of colonoscopy. And if they want to have a colonoscopy, that's great. If they don't, then you discuss other options. That's exactly right. To me, this is a shared decision-making conversation to try and understand what my patients' values and preferences are in, you know, in the most appropriate tradition of evidence-based clinical practice. I recognize that the evidence is evolving and I'm trying to not get stagnant in my, you know, worldview about what the most appropriate recommendation is. And what I find with my patients is uh, some of my patients say, okay, maybe the evidence on colonoscopy, uh, you know, it's not like it's, I get the colonoscopy and if I have cancer, it prevents me from dying. And if I don't have cancer, I've got a clean bill of health and it's perfect. But I would rather go through this once in 10 years and be done with it and take my chances that way. And I have other patients who say, you know what? <laughs> no, thank you. I'm going to do a less invasive thing. And maybe I want to do some, you know, immunohistochemical testing or things that don't require me to have a procedure of any kind, assuming they understand that if those screening tests come back positive, you're going to end up with an endoscopy to try and visualize what's going on in greater detail. 
but it's shared decision-making and it's being sort of open and humble about what we don't know as much as what we do know. Colin, thank you so much for shedding a lot of light into something that plagues patients and uh, primary care physicians. Absolutely my pleasure. And I look forward to learning more about this right alongside everybody else. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This article, which included an analysis over 130,000 patients, showed that sigmoidoscopy does decrease colon cancer over a 15-year period by about 20%. However, that's the relative benefit. The absolute benefit is about one case for every 200 people. It's clear that with sigmoidoscopy being beneficial, colonoscopy will be beneficial uh, as opposed to the recent New England Journal of Medicine article. They also found that possibly sigmoidoscopy is a little bit less effective in women than men. This needs further study. This raises the question of how best to interact with our patients about the possibility of sigmoidoscopy or colonoscopy as a colon cancer screening and prevention. Dr. West shares that he uses shared decision-making with his patients, trying to get them to do a colonoscopy every 10 years, but understanding if they want to refuse and then going to other tests that require more study to see the benefit. We hope that you learned much and are more thoughtful about colon cancer screening from this podcast. Thank you for listening. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.